Good morning, everybody. Um, another quick announcement. Uh, just, just regarding um, last week, we told you that we were going to have updated guidelines for masks and CDC stuff and all the COVID procedures and everything. So um, hopefully you saw that over the course of this week. But if you missed it, you can go ahead and uh, check it out at our newsletter, um, at our YouTube page, or at our um, main website. But looks like everybody who is here got the memo. So it's good to see you all. Um, happy Pentecost Sunday. Uh, yeah, whoa, today's Pentecost Sunday, which is exciting. Um, Pentecost Sunday is uh, the day where we spend time reflecting on what, uh, what God did 50 days after Jesus died and raised from the dead. Uh, Pentecost happened. It was a small group of people that uh, were gathered together waiting on God, waiting to be uh, what Jesus says is clothed with power. And they were gathered together in, a, in an upper room. And we read about it in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on this group of like 110 people, you know, our church, basically. Um, and that they, they started speaking in tongues. They experienced the power of God resting on them. And immediately what happened was that Peter, one of the apostles, he got up to preach the gospel to this gathered crowd uh, that was outside the house. And he shared the good news of what Jesus had done for them on the cross, that he, had, that he is the Messiah, that he has provided a way for us to be intimately connected and restored to relationship with the Father. And that we see that thousands of people all in one day uh, are born again and experience this new life with God. And, um, and one of the things that's really cool about it is, is it was a, a, a multi-ethnic, multilingual, huge group of people that the Holy Spirit, when he rests on God's people, it's not just so that we get the little tinglies, which we love the tinglies. How many of you guys love the tinglies? Man, I do. But... But that, that it's, it actually empowers us to be sent out to share the good news, what Jesus has done in our lives with all the different people all around us. And that's what we're about as a church. Amen? All right, cool. So, so at the end of the service, we're just going to take some time, wait on the Holy Spirit, see what he wants to do, uh, and, and invite him to come and fall on us just like he did 2,000 years ago. Um, we are nearing the end of a series. We have been going through the Psalms, and what we've been doing is is trying to glean from the Psalms uh, language for our own prayer life, how we can process all the different things that we feel and we experience and how we can take them to the Lord in prayer. Um, and we have just today and next week will be the end of our series. Pastor Jace is going to bring us home, so you're not going to want to miss that. Last week we talked about uh, the language of doubt and um, kind of like deconstruction, just how God gives, how God walks with us through the wilderness of doubt. I hope it was super helpful, um, but today we are going to go ahead and linger in the heaviness just a little bit longer, and we're going to look at uh, look to the Psalms to give us language for grief and lament, how we meet with God in the thick of our pain when life hurts and prayers feel like they're going unanswered. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 88. We're going to get there in just a little bit. Now at this time, five years ago, back in 2016, um, 
I was a bundle of nerves in the springtime. We were experiencing a really interesting season as a church. And, and of course, uh, Carly and I in our lives, we were just a couple of months into leading Vancouver Vineyard Church, brand new, feeling all freaked out and excited and jittery. Carly was super pregnant, and it seemed like uh, one of our friends was having a baby pretty much every single week. There was just this like wave of children And it was really exciting. And right after Memorial Day in 2016, we found out that two of our very close friends had lost their baby um, at 37 weeks. And uh, so it it was a stillborn child. And when we heard the news, I immediately was just gripped with intense grief. And I began to weep in my living room. And so Carly and I, we ran, rushed over to their house to spend time with them. Um, to hear the story, to cry with them, to pray with them. And it was a very strange experience for us because my wife was glowing. She was ready to uh, have our firstborn, Lewis, like within the next couple of weeks, um, do pretty much any day. And at the same time, our good friend, um, she was recovering from an exhausting and difficult labor, having to give birth to her child who had passed away. And... um, and so we sat in the living room and we looked at pictures of this baby girl. Her name was Sunny. Um, she had this adorable, cute dress on. It was, it was really, really powerful. And we prayed over them in their grief. And then they, in turn, laid hands on us and prayed over us in our joy as we expected our firstborn. And it was honestly one of the most profound experiences of my life of what the church is called to be. Rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and at the exact same time mourning with those who are mourning. And my friends, they asked me to preach the funeral for this little girl. And I had never preached a funeral before and I was scared to death because what do you say at a funeral for a stillborn child? You see, all of our instincts when somebody dies, the American sort of evangelical Christian way that we tend to process these kind of events, you know, our instinct is to celebrate and remember the good times and tell stories. And all of that was shattered in this case. There wasn't really a life to celebrate. There weren't memories to share. And I realized in that moment that I was very ill-equipped to walk with somebody who was in their grief. I think that we are not good at grief and lament. American Christianity is notoriously averse to sitting in loss and grief and lamentation. But at the same time, the Bible is filled with poetry about the pain of human suffering and injustice. In fact, 100 out of 150 psalms contain lament, and 40% of the psalms are specifically about Lament. Think about that. Think about how prevalent lament and pain and grief is in the poetry and how little of it we get, in, we, we get into ourselves. In the, in the evangelical church, how many of our songs even reference suffering? How many of our songs contain the refrain, Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? How often when we come together to worship on a Sunday morning are we singing, How long, Lord? Where are you, God? What the heck? Somebody needs to write that song. 
In fact, one study of, ma- of mainstream Christian worship songs shows that about 5% of all of the music that we sing in church even contains lament compared to two-thirds of the psalms. We don't grieve well. We don't know how to respond to loss well. Instead of doing the things that we see in the Bible, like tearing our garments and wailing in mourning when somebody that we love is lost, we instead celebrate life. We struggle to even face the reality of sickness and pain and death. And I believe that this stunts us from becoming mature followers of Jesus. Heck, mature human beings, people in general. Generally speaking, Western culture as a whole, it devalues grief and loss because it wants to place a high value on control and upward growth. Grief and loss is like the opposite. Grief and loss is all about surrender and descent. You see, we want our lives and our businesses and our churches and everything to be perpetually up and to the right. Up and to the right. So when pain enters our lives, we reflexively minimize or deny it most of the time through distraction or numbing. Our society has trained us to pay attention to our successes, but not to our losses. Though our pain needs to be grieved, instead we turn to coping strategies, often in the forms of substance abuse. And and look, no judgment. That is human. And I think that it's at least part of the reason why many of us are carrying a few extra pounds after the last year that we've been through. A refusal to embrace our losses and grieve them leads us to a shallow spirituality that blocks the work of the Spirit in our lives, and it contributes to shallowness in our churches. Uh, This week, I've been spending a lot of time reading a book called Prophetic Lament by Soong Chan Ra. Has anybody here read that book? No surprise, Joel Wakeman has. Um, (laughs) Uh, I highly recommend it to you all. It's been a, it's been a really powerful book for me. It's a, it's a commentary going through the book of Lamentations. And this is what he writes um, towards the beginning of the book. The American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget the absence of lament in the, lit- in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity over, of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. As American Christians, I think that we do not know the biblical language of lament. We're pretty good at talking about, you know, having language for the love of God. We're pretty good at language about being more than conquerors and sort of a triumphalism. We're pretty good at even sort of having a a, a persecution mentality and feeling like we're being the victims um, from time to time, but we don't know well how to grieve. We need to learn from the poets of the Bible. We need to learn their songs of sorrow. When Jesus commands us to mourn with those who mourn, we need to be equipped with language to do that. We need to mourn for the 588,000 people in our nation who have died of COVID this year. 
We need to mourn for those who have lost spouses and parents and friends and who were unable to come together to grieve because we weren't able to gather. We need to mourn for the thousands upon thousands of children who went hungry this year, not able to get their school lunches that they depend on and remaining in toxic households during the pandemic. We need to learn to mourn with our brothers and sisters of color in a year of extreme pain and unrest following the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others that have followed in the months since. We need to learn how to have language to mourn and cry out and tear our garments over the national holocaust of the unborn in our country. We need to learn how to mourn with Israeli and Palestinian brothers and sisters who have lost families and homes over the last couple of weeks. Church, when we look at all of the pain around us, we are called to mourn. God's people must learn to respond to pain with mourning. And praise God that he has given us what we need to be equipped to do this. He's given us the Psalms to lead us in our grief and our lament. And so this morning, I want to just spend some time in Psalm 88 and in processing personal grief. And then we're going to look to the prophet Jeremiah to teach us about prophetic lament. Uh, In Pete Scazzaro's recent book that he just came out with called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, he lays out three biblical phases to process grief and sorrow. The first phase, he says, is to pay attention to the pain, then to wait in the confusing in between, and then the third phase is to allow the old to birth the new. And these phases aren't necessarily a step-by-step of how to get through grief, And they they frequently overlap, and it can be cyclical. In fact, the deeper the grief that you experience, the more likely that this will take a longer time and will be more cyclical in the process. And so in phase one, we we need to pay attention to the pain of loss or trauma. Rather than running away from the discomfort or numbing ourselves through coping mechanisms, we allow ourselves to experience and express all of the stuff that is swirling on the inside of us. And then we start to emerge from phase one and we go into phase two. And we don't really feel the pain so acutely at that point, but we're still not through the wilderness of grief. There's a delay between the initial pain and the new thing that is being born on the other side. Phase two is all about faithfulness in the in-between. And it's often in phase two that we start to experience a lot of the stuff that we talked about last week. Doubt, confusion, feeling the silence of God, the dark night of the soul. And God's call to us in that phase is to be faithful and to not quit. If you don't quit, you'll get all the way through to the other side. And then we get to phase three, which is all about God redeeming the pain to bring new life. It's resurrection that follows crucifixion. It's embracing the new reality even though it's not the same as the former reality and trying to see the good new stuff that God is birthing through it. And I think that the Psalms of lament are especially helpful for us when we hit that phase one, paying attention to the pain. This is the point where we need the most help naming what we're experiencing and expressing the grief. So let's just read all of Psalm 88 and then... um, and just let it rest on us. Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. 
Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the places of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and terrors and in despair, your wrath, it has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's it. That's how it ends. That's in the Bible. There's no... But I'll sing of your steadfast love forever. I know that you're going to come in the noon. He says, darkness is all I've got left, God. It's all I've got. The beginning of processing our grief is paying attention to the pain and allowing yourself to feel and express what is happening on the inside of you, no matter how messy it is, no matter how sad and tragic horrifying and irreverent it might even be. God is not afraid of that. He calls us to be honest with God and honest with ourselves. You see, God is not afraid of our honesty. He knows what's happening in your heart well before you even know it or say it out loud. And it's in getting it out in the open that the work of healing can finally begin. You see, our lives really are full of all kinds of things that we need to allow ourselves to grieve. What is the, the, the line from Princess Bride? Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. Every stage of our lives will carry with it the pain of loss. We grieve the, you know, the obvious big things, the death of a loved one, a divorce, a miscarriage, moving to the other's side of the country or having your close friends moving away from you, sickness or pain, there's job transitions, there's breakdowns of relationships and breaking of trust, there's the loss of a loved pet. I mean, there's like lots of things that are you know obvious that we need to learn to grieve. But then there's the smaller things that we often just kind of want to like brush aside and not really pay attention to. Stuff we don't think about as often. Things like becoming an empty nester, or even just your kids starting kindergarten. I'm like having to process that my son's going to start kindergarten and he's not going to be home every day anymore. 
aging. My body isn't what it used to be. My, some, some good years have gone by, and I won't get them back. Disappointment, the death of a dream, loss of freedom. Parents, have you grieved the loss of freedom? That's real. And then there's the small stuff that, that happens to us all the time uh, that seems almost petty and at the same time needs to be grieved. A couple of years ago, Carly and I took a, a sort of infamously catastrophic vacation to Kauai. Um, some of you know the story, but it was for our 10-year anniversary. We were so excited about it. We had been saving up for it for years, and Carly was 20 weeks pregnant with our second-born, Soren. And we get on the plane, we fly all the way to Kauai, and we have about half a good day. And then all of a sudden, Carly starts feeling severe pain in her abdomen. And we're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Is it food poisoning? What's the problem? And it just wouldn't go away. And so we take her to the hospital, and we discover that she has appendicitis. Because of course you have appendicitis on your vacation, (laughs) And she needs to get an appendectomy. And we were afraid that we were going to lose Soren in the process because they had to actually like go in right by where Soren lived. And um, anyway, the, the surgery went well. It was great. We went back to the hotel. And then that night, there was the worst storm in the recorded history of the island. It was something like 50 inches of rain in 24 hours. It was insane. The entire island washed out. And so we were confined to a hotel room for about five days just sitting there. And we would drive to places only to find out that the roads were closed. It was nightmarish. There was a bunch of other things, you know, sharks, infestation. It was just a bunch of problems. Um, and while I was there and I was like, this, this sucks, but it's also kind of funny, I was texting with my good friend Rose, our friend Rose, who uh, is the regional overseer here at the Vineyard. And she told me, you need to grieve your vacation. And I was like, how petty is that? And she said, trust me, you need to grieve it. And so I went out on the bluff overlooking the the brown, muddy ocean and had it out with God. And I said some things that I won't repeat here about how frustrated I was, how hurt I was, how we had sacrificed and saved and planned. And this was supposed to be our finally, we were going to get a break and we didn't get it. If anybody wants to send us to Hawaii, we would love to try again. In all of our personal grief, whether it's the devastating catastrophe of a loss of a loved one or the petty frustration of a ruined vacation, God invites us to come to him with our pain. There is nothing that you can't say to God as you walk with him through it. The beginning of healing comes when we allow ourselves to feel and express all the stuff. But what about collective pain? What do we do with the bigger stuff? The last year that we have walked through has been sort of a national grief bomb, a national trauma altogether. And the American church has frequently been a bit at a loss with how we respond as God's people when injustice or trial or catastrophe strikes. There has been so much pain in our nation, and what we needed was a church who was equipped to bring prophetic lament. Again, Sung Chen Ra. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. 
The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. Lament recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. Right now, we're in a, a strange season where things are start, we're starting to emerge. Masks are starting to, to droop a little bit and about to be cast off. And as much as we are looking forward to finally being liberated from our face coverings and some joy of the, some version of normal life, you know, hopefully being on the horizon, we are still in a season of lament and mourning. There is still so much grief in the air. In times of great national grief, the prophets of Israel would demonstrate prophetic lament, which is characterized by mourning and repentance. They would enact um, lament uh, and repentance before God and in front of the people. We see this in Daniel and Nehemiah. You see, Israel had been in exile for 70 years, out scattered throughout Babylon. And the time was drawing near for God to send his people back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And yet, these prophets, Daniel and Nehemiah, and Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 1, their response to the, we hope that we get to go back home very, very soon, their first initial response was to weep and mourn and fast and to repent of the sins of their people. Sins that they had not been involved in. Sins of a previous generation. You see, what what we see in the prophets is that lament over the pain that we experience today often means weeping over the sin of a previous generation. And as the church who has been given the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, we should be the first to respond with lament when we see that things are not as they're supposed to be. When we see pain and injustice, we are the ones who who God has uniquely... um, uh, uh, uniquely uh, prepared to be able to lament. And this is not a statement that's political. This is not wokeness. This is prophetic. As, as with grief, the language of lament is meant to be honest and jarring. And we see this clearly demonstrated by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who was prophesying during the siege of Jerusalem. By the Babylonians. He watched the temple burn. He was present for all of it. And his response was this poetry that we read in Jeremiah chapters 8 and 9. He writes, Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Then skip down to verse 20. Now you, women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. I think that that is a prophetic word to the American church right now. We need to learn how to weep and wail. We need to learn how to lament. We need the language of the poets and the prophets to help us locate our hearts in the heart of God, especially in his heart, caring for the oppressed against injustice. 
In his book about the Psalms, Walter Brueggemann argues that prophetic laments are complaints that insist that things are not right in the present arrangement. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. That they, that they need not stay this way, but they, they can be changed. Things are not good, and God, these things need to change. And the speaker will not accept them in this way because it is intolerable. He said, I refuse to accept the present reality as normal. I reject that. And then finally, that it is God's obligation to change things. God, it's on you. We can't do this. We need you. The main point is that life isn't right. It's not what we were promised. It's, it's, not what, it's not like the vision that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6 of praying on earth as it is in heaven. And we look around and we see this stuff and we say, it's not right, God. How long? Where are you? The refrain that we see throughout the Psalms is that, how long? In Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Walter Brueggemann observes that the the Psalms of Lament, which he calls the Psalms of Darkness, are actually an act of bold faith, albeit a transformed faith. It is an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretend way. And it is bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for conversation with God. There is nothing out of bounds. There is nothing precluded or inappropriate from taking to God. And so we need to learn to lament. We learn to process our grief with God. As the people of God, we put our political and our ethnic sort of, um, we put our political or ethnic allegiances aside so that we can sit in pain with those who are hurting and then we join them in their cry for justice. And this is something that we are relatively new at as a church. God is awakening this with kind of some intensity right now. We, like most American churches, we tend towards the positive, to the triumphant, and we are learning to embrace weakness and suffering with those who suffer. We've been practicing this together on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. at our justice prayer meetings. And let me tell you, it's kind of hard. It grates against all of my instincts. As a leader, I want to pronounce like, God's going to, the revival's on the horizon, guys. Everything's going to be good. You know, God's doing something. He's doing a new thing. Isn't everybody excited? And to sit together and say, God, this sucks. is hard. It's been purifying for us. And I want to invite you to join us. No better way to start the day than with a little lament. We are learning to, exp- to express ourselves to God as Jeremiah did in his long poem called Lamentations. The first step towards expressing our hearts to God in our own language is by first learning how to express the Bible to God in his language. And so I just want to read a a big section from the book of Lamentations from the prophet Jeremiah. Feel free to close your eyes, listen. Um, But this is what the prophet writes. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. 
He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Skip to verse 31. For no one is cast off forever by the Lord, or for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Lamentations is really intense, and it's really beautiful. And here's the thing. You can't take Lamentations and build out a systematic theology from it. You can't say, well, clearly, the Bible says that I believe it. That settles it. God broke out his teeth with gravel, shot him with arrows, made him drink gall, made his life horrible and miserable. No, God gave him space. And Jeremiah said, this is what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing This is what I'm processing. I don't understand, God. I know that there was sin in the land, but this feels disproportionate. This feels wrong to me. Where are you? And at the same time, the Spirit's work and the interior of his soul also brings him to this incredible paradox. God broke out all my teeth with gravel. Surely he's going to be good to me. Surely Surely he's going to rescue us. This is the expression of lament. This is how we are invited to come before God in our pain. This is something that we are being drawn into by God for just such a time as this. 